I want to share something as, as we get going here in just a moment. Um, I was thinking as, as Harlan was sharing about that attitude of celebration. And we're going to look at that attitude a little bit today. The fact is we think an awful lot about our joy when we consider seeing the Lord one day. We consider our joy. What a wonderful day it will be. How much we're going to celebrate and how much joy we are going to feel. And as I was sitting there during communion and Harlan was sharing about just that joy, that celebration, what we're longing for, looking forward to. I, it was one of those things where you know where there's a verse. You just know it's there in a certain chapter. And so you go there and, and it's there. And this is, this is what I read. Isaiah 53 verse 10 tells us, But the Lord was pleased which means literally bent or desired. The Lord desired to crush him, speaking of Jesus, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And here's the deal. He will see offspring. He will prolong days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know what an amazing reality is? For all the joy that we're going to experience when we see Jesus, it will not come close to the joy that he will experience when he sees us. And that is a stunning thought. You think you're excited for His second coming? I believe the Bible shows us a joy, an eternal joy, a joy in the heart of Jesus that longs for that day in ways we don't even imagine or understand at this point. He can't wait to see you. And Lord, we can't wait to see you. What a blessed day that will be. What a time of celebration and rejoicing and feasting and wonderment. Father, we just long for it. And we're excited for it. And we pray this morning as we consider, Father, again, the Feast of Israel and the last feast that we would consider it in the context of all of this. That, Holy Spirit, you would teach us yet again one more time, another Sunday, that you'd take us through your word, that you would lean in and whisper into our ears. Father, if you need to take different people this morning on tangents away from what I'm saying, that's absolutely fine. Let it be by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, if you have things to teach us that aren't even in these notes, that's wonderful. Let it be what you want taught today. But let us hear from you, Lord. And I pray your word would be alive to us as we are learning to be alive to your word. Let this book be a precious thing in our hands. And your Holy Spirit, a precious thing in our hearts. Father, we love you. Teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll be again in Leviticus chapter 23, and we're just one week away, literally one week to the day from Christmas Day. And the kids are amping up, as they do every year. It's getting more and more difficult for them to be nice as opposed to naughty. Hayden had a great idea. He said, here's the way to prove or disprove whether or not there's a Santa Claus. Just be really naughty and see if you get cold. (laughs) Kind of a glasses half full approach, I think. But it seems that at this point we all have a kind of a childlike giddiness. Oh, I know there's the stress. I I know about that. And and the wrapping of the presents that has to be done and the final gifts that have to be purchased. But still, do you find yourself wandering in the malls or in the stores and you you just kind of, I don't know, it's probably just me. I was in Walmart just this last, uh, about, about two weeks ago. And I was walking around. I had to get some extra lights for our little decorating and stuff. And I came out of the decoration department. And and it's all bright and cheery and lit up. And this guy walked by me and he was humming White Christmas. 
just humming it to himself as he walked on by. I wasn't paying attention to anyone, just humming White Christmas. I wasn't two aisles away before I realized I was whistling White Christmas. It's infectious. And I have no idea, but I bet if we could go back in time and watch this from above, I would imagine White Christmas probably spread like a fungus among all the people there in Walmart. There's a giddiness about the season. The carols and the decorations and the movies, I I love it all. Gene Shepard in the movie A Christmas Story said the following is he called it lovely, glorious, beautiful Christmas around which the entire kid year revolves. Now, for all the wonderment and festivity and joy that comes with the Christmas season, the thing that always kind of gets me is the way we have to really work at putting meaning into it. Now, Christmas is not a biblical holiday. It's not something we're told to observe. It's not something God said, this is a holiday for you to keep. In fact, the Bible never once says, remember the birth of Christ. Focus on the birth of Christ. No, it says, remember his death, his burial, his resurrection. Focus on that. And yet, we, with Christmas, we try to infuse it with with all sorts of meaning. And sometimes I feel a little hollow. I don't know about you. This holiday season, I, I look at the Feast of Israel that we've been going through. We've done six of them so far. And I think, wow, what meaning and depth is really there when you study those things. The experience of those days. How powerful and wonderful they are. And gang, of the seven major feasts of Israel, the seventh one is the most important. The one we're going to look at today is the one that Christmas pales in comparison to the joy and the festivity and the wonderment of this particular holiday. But before we get there, before we finish these seven feasts of commemoration, remember, and anticipation, they do both, they commemorate, they anticipate, there are seven appointed times. There are also seven appointed signs. Seven memorials of what the Lord has done. Seven signals of either what He has done in the first coming of Jesus or what He will do in the second coming. And over the last month we've seen these feasts, these signs, these comings of Jesus. His first coming, 2,000 years ago, there were feasts, that, the first four feasts. Remember these four feasts in the springtime? So I asked you all about these last week. Let me ask again. What is the first feast? Do you remember the first feast? Passover. Excellent. And Passover happened on what day? Does anybody know what day Passover happened? On the 14th of Nisan. Excellent. The 14th of Nisan. <laughs> you guys are going... And then two or three, you know, get the 14th of Nisan. And those of you who don't, you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm glad someone else said it. Because I'm getting credit, you know, Pastor Rick saying, excellent. I didn't say a thing, but you know, I'm, I'm excellent just for being here. Nisan, the 14th, it was on the day of Passover. And don't miss the significance of these things. On the day of Passover, Jesus was crucified. Same day. Amazing. Passover points to our rescue. By Jesus. His death on the cross. He was the lamb that was slain. Not the Passover lamb. That was all pointing to Jesus. The second feast is the feast of unleavened bread. Does anyone know what day that happened on? Or began? 15th. Excellent. So on the 14th of Nisan, Passover. The 15th then was the feast of unleavened bread. Where was Jesus during this feast? Buried. In the grave. In the tomb. At that point, a picture we see in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of the burial of Jesus, the removal of our sin. An amazing parallel. We talked about that. The third feast, the Feast of First Fruits. This now happened on the 16th. See, all squunched together here. Squunched. You can use that word if you want to. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ, Christ Jesus, the first fruits of many who would be saved. 
And then the fourth feast, again in the spring, 50 days later, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, at the Feast of Weeks, that great time of harvest, the church was born. The church was born. You remember we talked about both Jew and Gentile became one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so where the day before Pentecost there were two kinds of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. On that day there began a new kind of person in the world. Jews, Gentiles and Christians. Which would be made up of either one, anyone who comes to faith in Christ Jesus. Well, those are the four feasts of the spring. I gave you some R words to go with those. If, if you're a little short on those or, or missing those and you've been taking notes, Passover was our rescue. Unleavened bread was our removal, the removal of our sin. First fruits, the resurrection. And the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, I don't believe I gave you an R word that week. Just say Ruth. Ruth. Just to remember, for the book of Ruth is about the coming together of a Gentile, Ruth the Moabitess, the Gentile and the Jew, Naomi, and then Boaz, the connection of the two Jew and Gentile in the church. So you just say Ruth for the Feast of Weeks. Well, there are three feasts in the fall. Three feasts in the fall. Remember the feasts in the spring all signaled which coming of Jesus. Good, good, Aaron. Say the first. Excellent. They signal the first coming of Jesus. The feast in the fall. They signal his second coming. Great. Don't you hate this? This when I was in school and the teacher would do that. They'd say half a sentence and then let it sit there, and we in the class go. You know? Anyway, three feasts in the fall. Rosh Hashanah, the first one in the fall. It's in the month of Tishri, which is our September-October time frame. Rosh Hashanah, which speaks of the rapture. The rapture of the church. Remember Rosh Hashanah, it's the day of the blowing of the trumpets, or literally the horn, the shofar. Shofar, shogud, we said that last week. The rapture, Rosh Hashanah. And then the second feast in the fall, Yom Kippur. It was that time of repentance. It was that day where God said, all of the Jewish people, when you come together for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and as atonement is happening, what were the Jewish people to do? They were to repent. They were to afflict their souls. They were to afflict their souls. It is a picture we talked about last week of that time of affliction. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 tells us the day of Jacob's trouble, that time when Israel will be afflicted in a tragic and difficult way. But just five days later, five days after Yom Kippur, five days. By the way, does anyone know just offhand what the number five signifies in the Bible? Provision. Provision. I wasn't thinking provision, but that works. It does. And, and you jump right out there, Jim. I love that. It does speak of provision. It also speaks of, and it actually is the same thing. It also speaks of grace. Of grace. That five days after the affliction, five days after the tribulation, if you will, five days after that Day of Atonement comes a day that is the greatest of all the feasts. The most wonderful. The one that, that if you are a Jewish person, this is the one to look forward to. And it's not Hanukkah. This is the big one. It is the day of greatest rejoicing. There's your R word for the seventh feast, rejoicing. It is called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. In the Hebrew, the word is Sukkah. 
Sukkah. You may have heard it called Sukkot. S-U-K-K-A-H. If you're translating the Hebrew. And Victor Buxbazen says in his book, The Gospel and the Feast of Israel, he says, He who has not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles does not know what rejoicing means. This was party time. This was the seventh of the major feasts. Remember on the religious calendar, the religious calendar starts in the spring. I know, I know that Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, civil, the civil calendar, but the religious calendar for the Jews starts in the spring. And it begins right after that, that first of the feast, Passover. And then the feasts go in line. And the last feast of the year, of the religious year, the last big one, the Feast of Tabernacles. Rabbis, speaking of the celebration and joy of this day, just call it the holiday. It's the holiday. You know this in America, if we say, hey, you're looking forward to the holidays, we're typically talking about the Christmas season. Well, for the rabbis, for the Jewish people, if they said, the holidays coming, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, on the 15th of the seventh month. You might want to just circle that it's the seventh month. Remember, it's the seventh month. That's a big deal. Anytime the seven shows up in Scripture, note it, mark it. On the 15th of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths. Booths, I thought you said tabernacle. Same thing. Booths, tabernacles, tents. It's the same thing. The Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. Verse 35. On the first day, as a holy convocation, you shall do no laborious work of any kind. Do you notice how much on the holidays that shows up? No work. I like that. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. To present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter in its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to the Lord on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. This is not like the feast of unleavened bread that Frank hated so much growing up. Now, this is not, oh, we've got to eat this matzah over and over. No, no, this is a feast. This is a party. This is, you're eating. You are filling up for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Well, you've got to have a rest on the eighth day after feasting for seven days. Definitely. It's like Thanksgiving afternoon. You know, you're just, ugh. So it's a time of that great rest. Now, on the first day, verse 40, watch this. You shall take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees and palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Did you catch that? What are you doing for seven days? You are feasting and you are rejoicing. Rejoicing. We get one day at Christmas. They got seven. Seven days of nonstop rejoicing before the Lord your God. Verse 41. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. And it shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. So God just repeats and repeats and repeats because we forget, forget, forget. Have it in the seventh month. Verse 42, you shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. It's a camp out, gang. 
so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times or appointed signs of the Lord. Gang, this feast is mentioned more than any other of the seven feasts in the scriptures. It is the most celebratory festival, as we said. It is the big one. It's joyful. It's glorious. It's a celebration like no other. The Feast of Tabernacles. And the sacrifices alone during this feast are monumental. Numbers chapter 29, and we won't go there this morning, but Numbers 29 indicates that a total of 70 bulls alone, this does not include rams, lambs, grain offerings, drink offerings, just the bulls, 70 bulls were sacrificed at this feast. Now, again, what is a tabernacle? It's a tent. It's a tent. We're not talking about little pup tents here. We're talking about a tent that was built literally by these leafy, beautiful trees, these palm branches, these willows. They put it together. They, They still would today. It's a feast celebrated. And what do you think the Israelites thought about this feast? What do you think they thought about this feast? Look at verse 40. It says, On the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage. Beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Down in verse 42. Live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. Now I don't know how you adults feel about camping out. What I've discovered is that the adult work at a camp out for the children's pleasure and enjoyment, it, it doesn't really pan out, you know? When you, the adults think about the camping, it's, oh, okay, we'll get it all. I remember a Christmas that we went up to a cabin in Idlewild, California, my family and I, and it was snowing, and my brother and I were absolutely thrilled. We, living in Southern California, there was no such thing as snow, and so going up to Idlewild, we saw snow, it was wonderful, it was that time of the year, and we had our toboggan, and we had our sleds, and the moment the car stopped, and my dad had to stop the car about a half mile from the cabin because he couldn't get the car to the cabin, we hopped on our toboggan and started sliding down to the cabin, down the hills, and we were just going off having a great time. And every now and then I would see out of the corner of my eye my dad and my mom trudging through the snow, carrying all the supplies all the things necessary to get from the car to the cabin. And I go, ah, they'll be fine. And we go back in the sleigh and just having a great time. It was wonderful. And they trudged down on the first day we got there. And on the next day as we were getting ready to go home, they trudged back. And that's how my parents spent that time. But this camp out, that's what it was. A big camp out for the people of Israel. And they would build these stand-up booths. After coming into the promised land game, they would gather all of the Jewish people within a Sabbath day journey of the temple, which would be about a half a mile. And they would build these tents out of the palm branches, the leafy trees, the willows of the brook, to exact specification. Now, just imagine that in your mind. Here's Jerusalem. Here's the temple. And around it, in, in a, about a half a mile radius, all around are these man-made tents. And all of the people of Israel camping out. It was a big party. Creation has nothing on the Feast of Tabernacles. Those of you who went to creation, maybe that's a good picture of of what was going on. People just everywhere and, and praising and celebrating and having a great time. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these tabernacles, these booths that the people built had to be built to to exact specification because they had to do two things. They had to shield against the heat of the day. So they built them literally to provide some kind of shelter, some kind of shade. 
But they also had to be spread out in such a way that at night you could lie down and look up through the roof and you could see the Lord's handiwork. You could see the stars at night. Why? So that the children could be taught. So that the people could understand this is how our forefathers camped in the wilderness for 40 years. God brought us through in booths and tents for 40 years. And so every year annually God says, do it again. Do it again. Build up some booths and feast and party and have a wonderful time and remember I brought you out. It commemorated the faithfulness of the Lord. If you want to take some notes this morning, Sukkot commemorated, the Feast of Booths commemorated the faithfulness of the Lord. We sang the song this morning, Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And in Old Testament days, this festival reminded the people annually of what the Lord had done. Let me quickly remind you what the Lord had done. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Did we just lose light? Cool. Alright. Psalm 105. And just follow the best that you can. Verse 37. Let there be light. (laughs) Timing was a little off on that, but that's okay. Verse 37 tells us that he brought them out. Psalm 105, 37. He brought them out with silver and gold. See, a little snowman in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer sings about silver and gold. He doesn't understand silver and gold like these guys did. He brought them out with silver and gold. Among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they had departed, for the bread of them, or the dread of them, had fallen upon them. He spread, watch this, he spread a cloud for covering, a cloud for covering, and a fire to illumine by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. (laughs) We may just want to leave it out, I don't know. He opened the rock, and the water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. And he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy. His chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also in the, also the lands of the nations, that they, excuse me, that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Each of these feasts, by the way, speak of the faithfulness of the Lord. All of the feasts talk about His faithfulness, point toward His faithfulness. In each and every one, you could sit and think about how God is faithful, how He doesn't forget, how He is always there for you. Turn now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. You know, I, I run across this often. We have actually gone to this verse often. And I think we need to keep going to this verse because as soon as we read it, as soon as we read it, gang, we forget about how faithful God is. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. You say, yeah, but Lord, I need those things. I understand that life is more than than, than my next meal. I understand that life is more than paying the bills and buying the clothes. I know that, Lord, but I need that. And I stress about that. And Jesus says in verse 26, well, look at the birds of the air. 
They don't sow. They don't reap or gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And that's the issue. God is faithful, but we are so faithless. We just have a hard time really believing, really buying it, really trusting what the Lord says. The Feast of Tabernacles every year reminded the Jewish people, God has His eye on you. And not as a a dictatorial judge, He has His eye on you. He covers you. He gives you light in the darkness. He brings you through. Will we ever believe this? I say this with some degree of frustration because in my own life, every time I sit down to do the bills, I get frustrated about it. And I look at how there's more going out than what's coming in. And and the Lord again and again and again says, Do you trust me? I mean, I understand, Rick, if you were in charge, there'd be something to be worried about. But you're not. I am. And I am faithful. So Sukkot commemorated the faithfulness of the Lord. Will you sink your teeth into it, especially this holiday season, when I know most of you have overspent on your credit cards just to make it a festive day. And as the kids are opening the presents, you're going... <laughs> and they toss it in the corner and you go... It's $24.95, man! Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He is faithful. He will take care of you. Even when it seems like it's as dark as night, He will provide a light. And when the heat of the day is bearing down, He will provide covering. He is the Lord. Trust Him. Sukkot commemorated the faithfulness of the Lord. It also commemorated the final harvest of the year. Again, the religious year. Because the Lord looked at it starting in the spring and coming around to the fall. So this would be considered the last, the final harvest of the year. Now remember, two other feasts had already celebrated harvest time. First fruits in the spring celebrated the barley harvest. And Shavuot, or Pentecost, celebrated the wheat harvest. Well, Sukkot now, the harvest of fall produce. The fruit of the land, the good stuff. Well, the wheat and the barley is good too. It's staple food, but it's kind of hard to have a party over wheat. You know, unless it's checks and it's mixed up with the butter stuff and the little checks mix. I love that. But the fruits of the fall, that's something to celebrate with. The good stuff. The sweet stuff. Going back to Leviticus 23, verse 39... It says on exactly the 15th day of the 7th month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate. That word crops is produce. Celebrate with a feast to the Lord for seven days. Psalm 104, verse 13 says, He waters the mountains from His upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of His works. And James 1.17 tells us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. But remember, this feast is not about first fruits. No, it's about last fruits. It's about final fruits. It's about the end harvest. The last harvest. The biggest harvest. Which tells us something about what it anticipates. Prophetically. 
Now you know by now all of these feasts, in one way or another, anticipate the comings of Jesus. We've looked at that, we've seen it, it's wonderful. And John 1.14 tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it's skenuo in the Greek, great little word, skenuo. It's literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He tabernacled. He set up a booth. His body was a tent in which he lived among us. And John says we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now you may say, oh, okay, so tabernacles really should go with the feast in the spring because it speaks of his first coming. That he became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Well, listen, I hate to burst anybody's Christmas bubble here, but it's very likely that Jesus was not born in the winter. Some of you already know this. He was probably born in the fall. In fact, he was probably born in the month of Tishri, based on what was going on at the time, where the shepherds were. You can do a lot of research into that. He was probably born in the month of Tishri, and I think, though I can't prove it, but it's very likely he was born on or during the Feast of Tabernacles. He came and he tabernacled among us. Well, why would you say he'd be born among the fe- uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles? Because that's what God does. He just sets it all up and then he watches it get all knocked down. He makes his perfect plan and he watches it play out and every, everything fits into the right slot. Every Lego clicks in just right. It's perfect. You just compare God's plan to Legos. Yeah, I did, but I'm a big Lego fan, okay? Again, this is not proof of his first coming. It's proof of his second coming. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. When, uh, when the Feast of Tabernacles happened, there were, two, there were seven primary mornings of the Feast of Tabernacles. And for those seven mornings when it was celebrated, the priests would split up into two groups. One of the groups of priests went to the east. The other groups of priests went to the south. Group number one. They went to the east, and as a group, they gathered together branches of willow and palm and myrtle and citrus. And these, they would bring them back up to the temple. Half of them were laid before the altar. The other half were handed out to the people to wave during this time of celebration. Now, the reason that this happened is interesting. Because even in that day, there were denominational differences. You see, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two groups who couldn't agree on an awful lot. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple and its maintenance. The Pharisees were in charge of the synagogues. And so the Sadducees said, no, what this passage is dealing with, when it talks about getting these branches, is we're supposed to bring them in and lay them before the altar in the temple. Well, that's the place that they were in charge of. Of course, that's where they want it to be. The Pharisees on the other hand, no, give it to the people. Now, this may surprise you, but the Pharisees were considered the happier of the two groups. Granted, they were more legalistic. But the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the miraculous. The Sadducees said, all that is bunk, you can't really buy that stuff. While the Pharisees, they maintained a resurrection. They knew that there were miracles. And so, naturally, they tended to be the happier of the two. I think both suffered a little bit when Jesus came because they just missed it. They didn't understand. But they made a compromise. All of these leafy boughs were brought to the temple and half laid before the altar, half passed out before the people. Because, and if you're taking notes, number three, Sukkot anticipated the early rains. It anticipated the early rains. Something else that happened that was very interesting and it's part of this. Group one went to the east. They got those leafy boughs, brought them back. Group number two went to the south. 
They went to the south to a pool called Siloam. Does anyone know what Siloam means? It means scent. Scent. Or literally, the scent one. This group of people went to the scent one. They went to the water, and they would take with them a golden pitcher. When they got down to the water, they would dip it in. It wasn't a real deep pitcher. It maybe held about a gallon of water. But they brought that golden pitcher back up into the temple. And there, with all the people watching, they poured the water from the pitcher out at the golden altar to remind the people that water was provided for them when they were in the desert. But also, also, it was anticipatory. They would pour out the water to anticipate the coming of the early rains. Winter. And the rainy season was coming in on Israel. And the people whose crops were dependent on the rains would pray for rain. That was part of this, this deal. It's life in a barn. <laughs> they also did something else. While you're thinking about all this, and I'm laying this all out for you, they brought in all these leafy boughs, they brought up the water in the pitcher, and they would pour that out of the temple. At the same time they poured it out, they took another pitcher and they poured out, interesting, wine. Wine. This picture you and I know very clearly of the blood of Jesus. But they would pour the wine out, and it would mingle and mix with the water, and it would go through little tunnels and little tubes back into the Kidron Valley, back, back into the brook. But on the eighth day of the feast, the last day, The priest went with the pitcher down to the water. Watch this. They came back and they poured it out, but nothing came out for there was no water in the pitcher. On the last day, they poured out nothing. Why? Partially because it acknowledged that they were already in the promised land. They no no longer needed the water that was provided when they were in the desert. But also, during that time, the priest, all those present, would bow their heads and they would read this prayer. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is another name or an indication of Israel. And he says the following. They would read this prayer. For I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams in the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up like the grass, like poplars or willows by streams of water. Gang, why would they read these words? Because Isaiah 44, everyone understood, was a prophecy of the coming Messiah and the outpouring of the Spirit that would only happen when Messiah came. They poured out that water, watching, hoping, praying for Messiah. And then they poured out an empty picture saying, we don't want just the water of the world. We want to be filled with your Spirit. We're looking for the outpouring of Messiah's Spirit. So what? Thanks for the history lesson, Rick. Let me tell you, so what? Check this out. In John chapter 7, Jesus was at the Feast of Booths. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. He he wasn't going to go up at first, but he waited until everybody went on up. He was biding his time, for he knew if he made too much of a splash, as it were, that people would know who he was and he would be brought before the rulers too early. Jesus was on a time schedule. But he went up a little bit late to the Feast of Tabernacles and listen to what he did. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, The great day of the feast. This would be day 8. Jesus stood up, listen, and said, If anyone is thirsty, 
Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John adds, by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who have believed in him were yet to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The empty pitcher at this moment, gang, is being poured out. The people are silently praying, please send Messiah, please pour out, pour out your Spirit. And Jesus breaks the silence and says, I am the living water. This is the point where Jesus spoke up. Oh, the drama must have been amazing as the people are praying. They're going, what? What did he say? Come to me if you're thirsty. As they're watching that empty pitcher pour nothing but air. If you need something to drink, Jesus said, come to me and I will provide it. From your innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. Gang, what drove the Jewish leaders absolutely nuts about Jesus is he made everything about himself. It was all about him. Every time he turned around, some major feast, some major holiday, something that was Jewish, and it was theirs, and they clung to, Jesus said, oh yeah, by the way, that's about me. And they hated that. It's not about you. Who are you? Where do you come from? You're out of Nazareth. Nothing good comes from there. But there's more again. The celebration of water libation, which is what that was called, that happened in the morning. Something else happened in the evenings. It was called the celebration of illumination. There were, at the temple at the time, four absolutely giant menorahs. To give you a picture of how big these menorahs were, the wicks in the menorahs were old used robes of the priests. Those were the wicks for these things. Honking menorahs. And these things stood up in the temple and they light them in the evening. And it was said that from Jerusalem you could see the temple lit up from a hundred miles away. The gold facade on the temple with those great giant menorahs all lit up and the fires blazing bright. And each evening the priest would walk the 15 steps up to the altar on the temple mount. And they would sing what's called the Psalms of Ascent. You may have been in the Psalms reading along and come to a place that says Psalm of Ascent. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess I should be walking upstairs while I read this. No, this was about when the priest would walk up to the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would read through, they would sing these Psalms. They'd take a step, sing a psalm. Take another step. Sing a psalm. Psalm 120 through 134. The Psalms of Ascents. And so they'd go up these steps to the place of sacrifice, singing all the way up. And when they got up to the top, they'd ignite these great lampstands. And all the people were just having a great time, rejoicing, praising the Lord. But on the eighth day, the lamps no longer were burning. Only through the seven days. On the eighth day, the lamps were doused, extinguished, and something else happened. For on that day in the evening, Jesus stood up. And John 8:12 says, He called out, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 9, verse 4, he says, We must work the works of, those who, uh, of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. It is always about Jesus. Well, it's a celebration of the water libation. No, no, it's about Jesus. Well, it's a celebration of illumination. No, it's about Jesus. On the Feast of Tabernacles, we're looking back, commemorating. No, you're looking forward, anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. Sukkot anticipates the early rains, but gang, finally Sukkot anticipates the earthly rain 
of Jesus. R-E-I-G-N. The earthly reign of Jesus. Now think with me. Stay with me just a few minutes more. The feast in the fall. Rosh Hashanah. Feast of trumpets. Speaking of the rapture of the church. Yom Kippur. Atonement. Affliction. Speaking of that time of repentance. The tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble. But what happens next? What happens next on God's prophetic calendar? Anyone want to take a stab at it? The church is raptured. Seven years of tribulation happens on planet Earth. And then, the second coming. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The second coming. I thought the rapture was the second coming. No, there are two aspects of it. Two aspects of the second coming. Come on, Rick, listen. I shared this last Sunday night. There were two aspects of the first coming, too. Do you realize that? The prophets prophesied two different first comings of Jesus. Micah prophesied that the Messiah would come to Bethlehem. And later, I believe Zechariah was the one who prophesied that the prophet or that Messiah would come to Jerusalem riding as a king on a donkey. Well, he did both, didn't he? Two aspects, one coming. Same with the second coming. Two aspects, the rapture of the church and then part two. The second coming or the glorious appearing of Christ. And what month again, what month does this feast happen in? What month? The seventh. The seventh. Tishri. The seventh month. The seventh month. The seventh, seventh, seventh month. Why are you driving that in? Gang. If you follow the biblical genealogy, and we've talked about this, the Bible indicates the earth, the world, is roughly 6,000 years old. There have been six thousands. And we have just stumbled into the seven thousand. Seven days, 7,000 years, seven months. This all happens in the seventh month. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying we're in overtime. I'm saying we're on borrowed time. Now, we don't know exactly. The calendars aren't exactly precise, exactly lined up. But if you're asking me, do, do you really, Rick, are you really saying that you believe that Jesus is going to come any time that's not just... It's not just words. You really believe that? Yes. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. If we could go all the way back to the beginning and reckon the days all the way through and figure out the calendars, I believe we would be looking at a very, very short amount of time. In fact, the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because we're still here. Think about that. Turn to your Bibles. We'll finish here. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Second to last book in Well, yeah, second to last book in the Old Testament Zechariah, Malachi Zechariah chapter 14 Listen to this, watch this Behold, a day is coming for the Lord When the spoil taken from you will be divided among you For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the city will not be cut off from the city, 
or the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in or on a day of battle. Watch. In that day, his feet, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. If anyone asks me, Rick, you believe in a rapture? Yeah, because it says that we will meet him in the clouds. And you believe in a second coming? Yes, because it says right here, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. These are two separate events that the Bible clearly talks about, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will all flee, he says, by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you did before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. He's talking about a massive earthquake. Jesus' feet touched the Mount of Olives, and it begins to shake. And that's the big one, gang, and it splits the Mount of Olives. And it says, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Who are the holy ones? It's you. It's Christians. It's those who have been saved, who have already been home with him, who come back with him. Oh, Rick, that's really nutty. Hey, it's just biblical, but we'll go on. I can talk more about that that later. Verse 6, In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. It will come about that at evening time there will be light. And listen to this, verse 8. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. Living waters. That whole thing about the water libation. Jesus stands up, he says, I am the living water. Believe in me, the living waters will pour out of you. And on this day, when Jesus comes back, standing on the Mount of Olives, living waters now flow out from the mount. Wow. Living waters. Living waters. It tells us Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. Interesting. Interesting. There's no Mount of Olives Hilton. There was going to be. There was going to be. The Hiltons wanted to build a huge hotel on the Mount of Olives, but they realized they couldn't do so. It was discovered that there is a huge fault line that runs directly through the Mount of Olives. A massive fault line. And so they didn't build it for a seismological problem. I would say a spiritual logical problem is the reason you didn't build it. And the Jerusalem Report, October 17, 2005, tells us the following, just a couple months ago. The question is not if Israel will undergo a massive earthquake. The question is not if, but when. The Syrian-African rift runs north from Eliad all the way to Kirat Shmona. So it makes sense that when the big one hits, the whole country will feel it. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. When the big one hits. And it will all be touched off by the foot of Jesus planted firmly on the Mount of Olives. Skip down to verse 16. We're almost done. Then it will come about that any... Now, a lot happens in between that time. God puts down the nations. Jesus totally wipes out those who are against him and it says in verse 16 that it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts and to celebrate what? A feast of tabernacles the feast of booths this is the only one of the seven feasts that began as a commemoration served as an anticipation but will one day again be a feast of commemoration. It will be served, it will be followed, it will be celebrated throughout the millennial kingdom. We get to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This is going to happen every year annually. 
this wonderful party. And it won't just be for Israel any longer. It will be for all of God's people. All the people on earth during the millennium will gather back at Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now verse 17 says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to the Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So if you want rain in the following year, come to the feast. There is something amazing in that, gang, because that's what happens to us when we refuse to come before the Lord. We say, I don't need God, I don't need church, I don't need Bible study, I don't need worship, I don't need prayer time, I don't need fellowship. I can do this on my own. What happens is we get dry. We get incredibly dry. Our lives become difficult to live. The answers are not there. And we find ourselves thirsty. And I'll tell you a measure of this if you are on that path is when church attendance attendance becomes a bother or a chore. When just being here makes you go... Or when Bible study becomes dry and lifeless. Or when worship, when worship, that's for those emotional people, so I'll wait till about a half hour late and come in and then get the Bible study. Because I don't need the worship part. Gang, it's because we haven't been spending time with the Lord. He says, you come up, you get the rain. You don't spend the time with me, you will miss the rain. It will not pour out. The Feast of Tabernacles is a voluntary and will be a voluntary annual event. Voluntary, you might say. It doesn't sound fair. The people, the people will get a drought if they don't come, which is exactly what happens if we don't come. You're right. There will be drought if people don't come. But not only is it a physical truth of the new millennium, it's a spiritual truth for all time. You will, you will be dry if you don't come before the Lord. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated God's faithfulness. The Feast of Tabernacles commemorated the final harvest. It anticipated the early rains and the earthly reign of Jesus. It's again the only feast that began as commemoration, became anticipation, and will one day again be commemoration. A feast to remember the Lord bringing all His people in the final harvest into His new kingdom. Amos chapter 9 verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. I will wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved in the last book of the Old Testament. You might want to flip there. Micah chapter 4. It tells us... Wait a minute, that's not the last book, is it? Micah chapter 4. Go go backwards. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills. And there will be topographical change at that time in Jerusalem. It will be raised up above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us about His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, under his 
tabernacle, if you will, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The Feast of Tabernacles. When is that feast? It's not just the seventh month, but I believe it's in the seventh millennium. Messiah's second coming. And it is near. And we long for it and look forward to it. There will be a day of rejoicing and celebration unlike any we have ever experienced. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for joy and celebration. Again, for putting these emotions into our lives and our hearts. But Lord, as we just round out these feasts, we thank you in the, for the powerful way that they point us to Jesus. That they help us to see Jesus. And to understand, Lord, that you had a plan from the beginning that involved Jesus tabernacling among us. Father, we come to you and we seek you out and ask that you will dwell not only among us but in our hearts. We love you so much, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.